Good morning, everybody. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 23. We're going to be in verse 4 this morning. Uh, for those of you who are just stopping in this week, uh, we're doing a four-part series through the Shepherd's Psalm. We looked at the first three verses last week. We're looking at verse 4 today. And as you're turning there, um, I'm just going to start from verse 1, end with verse 4, and we'll, we'll study that last verse together. Psalm 23, verse 1 through 4. King David, he writes this. This is what he says. He says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. This is our text for today. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we ask right now that as we open up your word, you would send the power of the Holy Spirit to fasten your word to our hearts. We pray for all sorts of distractions and oppressions and torments of the devil anything that would try to keep us from hearing the voice of the Lord and sensing the presence of our God. We pray that it would be banished in Jesus' name. We pray that darkness would be pushed out, evicted, not just from this theater, but from each and every one of our lives, every one of these families represented, so that we can have a clear channel by the power of the Spirit through your word to know what it means to be comforted, to be known, to be saved. And we ask, that, Lord, you just fill this place with the fragrance of Jesus Christ. We ask that above every other thing that we are experiencing sensory in the mind, in our bodies, Lord, this week, we, we pray that above all of those things, the fragrance of Jesus Christ would be the most potent and the most powerful and the most vivid and the most alluring and the most attractive. I just ask for my brothers and sisters that today we would leave this building wanting to follow you, not because we have been forced, but because we have been persuaded, persuaded by a, a greater love and a greater treasure. Holy Spirit, that's your job. You have to do that to us. Pray that as I do my best to explain your word, that you would apply it in a supernatural and powerful, profound way only way that you can. We pray and trust in this. In Jesus' name, amen. The valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of death. Last week we looked at Christ as our shepherd. This week I want to look at Christ as our comfort in the valley of the shadow of death. One question <clears throat> that inevitably arises in every person's mind at some point Often it comes up during college, but it can come up earlier than that. It can come later in your 40s, 50s, and 60s. Inevitably, people start to ask this question. Why do bad things happen to us? 
There might be a variation on that question. Why do bad things happen to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to Christians? As though following Jesus would prevent anything bad from happening. It's this source of dismay and disappointment. That I'm following God and I'm doing all of this stuff and yet bad things are happening. It's not just a question that we ask, but it's, uh, it's an interrogative attack upon the nature and even the existence of God. Uh, J.L. Mackey, a philosopher, secular philosopher, in his book, The Miracle of Theism, makes this case against the existence of God using this very thing. He says, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustified pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God we all believe in could not exist. In other words, if evil exists, pointless evil, then God cannot exist. Of course, philosophers after that, both secular and Christian, have poked holes in that line of reasoning. I love how Tim Keller uh, uh, says this about that quote. He says, tucked away within that assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. But the Bible has a different viewpoint. The Bible says there are reasons for evil. There are origins to evil. And if you were to look all throughout the scriptures, you'd find a handful of reasons. One of them, probably the first one we would go to, is that we live in a fallen world. It wasn't designed that way. It's not going to finish that way. But right now, we live in a world that is caught in this tension. As Romans 8 says, that creation is groaning, longing to be set free. And Jesus Christ is in the middle, in the process of setting it free. And it will be set free. But we live in the tension of that. Where we see the effects of sin in the fallen world that we live in. Another reason is that there is a supernatural fallen being, the devil and his fallen angels that the Bible speaks about. There's spiritual oppression rampant all over our world. We can't see it, but we see its effects. And that devil is actively engaging in destroying people's lives and God's creation. Of course, he will be shut down. He's already been shut down at the cross, but he will be actively and once and for all finished in all of his work when Christ comes again. But there is that effect, the devil. But lest we think that everything bad that happens is because of the devil, lest we become that type of person, you know this type of person, that's just sniffing the devil under every rock, I have a headache, it's the devil! I am in debt, it's the devil! You know? Lest we think that it is one of those two only, the Bible also says that sometimes we make bad choices. Sometimes is a generous word. We make bad choices a lot. And sometimes the bad things that happen to us are are as a result of the bad decisions and choices we make. And so there's those three things. Us, the devil, fallen world. But also throughout Scripture... And even in our own experience, we might even be able to say, well, sometimes bad things happen and it doesn't seem like it's attached to any of those. Sometimes bad things seem to happen for no reason. And as you search the scriptures, you see that also implied, even though it's not necessarily said just uh, on face value, you see it implied in different stories. For example, the book of Job. 
one of the most righteous men that walked the earth, and he lost everything. Why? And the Bible almost never answers those why questions. It does give us an answer, but it, it usually isn't the why that we're looking for. And perhaps you, maybe Job is an extraneous circumstance, or an example, but perhaps you would say, you know what, I can, I can relate to that to some level. Sometimes bad things happen to me and I'm a pretty good person. And I see bad things happen to people that are pretty decent people. And there's no logical reason for it. You might even be coming out uh, on the tail end of last week's sermon about still waters, scoffing at the whole idea of still waters, saying, I haven't tasted still waters in my entire life. God hasn't been leading me by still waters. He's been leading me by massive conflict. Perhaps you're asking the question, why? Why? I want to, even though we could spend hours on this single verse, I just want to take out a few things. Relating to that, perhaps that's where some of you are at. The ba- what the psalmist pictures as the valley of the shadow of death. Perhaps you're going through a valley yourself. I want to ask three questions of the text pertaining to your valley. One, why do good people end up in valleys? Two, how that valley can destroy you if you let it. And three, how you can make it through the valley without being destroyed. That's what I want to look at today. Why do good people end up in the valleys? How that valley can destroy you? How you can make it through without being destroyed? Before we get anywhere, we have to understand what David is speaking about when he refers to the valley of the shadow of death. That metaphor is so powerful, you might not even need an explanation. You're like, I don't know what that is, but it sounds like what I'm going through right now. It's... A part of that shepherd metaphor, it's a metaphor, but it, referred, it was a metaphor that referred to an actual thing, an actual place. The valley of the shadow of death was an actual place away from the green pastures of verses 1 through 3 where a shepherd actually had to lead his sheep through a sharp ravine. It's a section of the trail that can't be avoided. It's not so much a detour as it is a place that must be crossed. Often, mountainous terrain would be uh, deeply formed over the centuries by flash floods and waters and winds until uh, it created deep ravines filled with roaring winds and narrows and darkness and often bandits and other forms of danger that stood in the way of a shepherd and a sheep. They had to go through this void. There were times that as a shepherd... They would need to bring the sheep most directly from point A to point B and right in the middle between point A and point B was what you would call the valley of the shadow of death. Ravines and wadis where the steep and narrow slopes kept out the light. That's why literally translated, you could call it the valley of deepest darkness. The valley of deepest darkness. The point of the shepherd's psalm right here is that sometimes the shepherd in his wisdom will take you through valleys like this even though you have no idea why or what's going on. There are times where a shepherd will take his sheep through the valley of deepest darkness because that is the, uh, that is the point that they have to get through to get to the other side. You don't know why, 
You don't know any other detours. You wouldn't know what to do if you were by yourself, but you have to trust the shepherd who leads you through it. In fact, the flow of Psalm 23, those first three verses seem to imply that those paths of righteousness, the shepherd leads us in paths of righteousness, sometimes include the valley of the shadow of death. It's not paths of pleasure. It's paths of being made righteous. Sometimes the fruit, pardon the silly pastoral metaphors and euphemisms, but the fruit often grows most in the valleys. Sometimes that path of righteousness includes the valley of darkness, even though at that moment we might not understand why, because we're right in the middle of it. Donald Miller once asked this question, he said, ever wonder why your favorite movies are loaded with conflict? All the movies you love, all the novels that you read, usually are wall-to-wall with conflict. Why? He goes on to say, when we watch the news, we grieve all of the conflict that we see, but when we go to the movies, we want more of conflict. Somehow we realize that great stories are told in conflict, but we are unwilling to embrace the potential greatness of the story we are actually in. We may think God is unjust rather than a master storyteller. And you might say at that point, well, great, so God is using my mishaps for his own amusement? Well, not quite. It just means that God's goodness is not limited to green pastures. God is not beyond using even the dark valleys and the difficulties that you're in to turn around for your greater good and his glory. He's not limited to simply the blessings in your life to show you that he's good. He's working below the surface. This is what we see in verse 4. God is working below the surface even in the valley of the deepest darkness. Sometimes God brings you through it. and We want to be careful with that language too. Because we also know that God doesn't author evil. He's not the author of evil. But he certainly will orchestrate it and turn it around for his good purposes. I love what we see. We see that very thing in Paul's letter to the Romans when he says in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now we might look at that verse and say, well yeah, it makes sense. When I pray, God works it together for good. When I read the Bible, God works it together for good. In other words, we think of the good things that we do and we, we assess that God is going to take the good in our lives and work it for good. No brainer. But if you look at the whole flow of Paul's thought here, look at what he starts with in verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's how he starts that whole section, the sufferings of this present time. So what is he saying later when he says, I believe that uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He's talking about the sufferings of this present time. Paul is saying, I believe and we know that for those who love God, the sufferings of this present time will be worked together for your ultimate good. But then we take ultimate good and we read into that our own version of what good is, right? I do this all the time. Take any circumstance that you're in, lost my job, got a flat tire, have a headache, I'm bored, but God is going to work out all things for my good. 
what it would be good for me in this moment? Netflix. <laughs> what would be good? A TV dinner. You know, what would be good? Ten hours of sleep and my kids sleeping in for an extra two hours. You know, like, enter, just enter into that space. Anything that you think is good. But Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't do that. He goes on to explain what he believes is good in God's eyes. He says, for those who are foreknown, they are also predestined to become conformed to the image of God. When he says right before that, we know that God works all things together for your good, or specifically, he works all of your present sufferings for your ultimate good, he's saying, and he says this in the next verse, he's working all of your sufferings so that somehow through those things he can conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what real good is. He doesn't mean he'll take away the difficulties or he'll remove the trials or you'll have an easy life or you'll never have to go through a valley again. He's saying you're gonna, you're gonna go through some valleys in life. But God is going to use those valleys to make you the person that he has envisioned before time began to make you stronger, to make you more solid in him, to make you experience his deep goodness and his love. In other words, the valley of the shadows becomes a powerful tool in the hands of the master. Baptist preacher F.B. Meyer once said, there is a good purpose in all of these shadowed valleys because they test the quality of the soul. They reveal our weak places. They unveil the stars that peer down through the interspaces of rock and tree. They make us follow the shepherd closely lest we lose him. It's in the darkness that we cling the most tightly to the person that we're following. Contrast that with this. When you're most, uh, uh, when you're most comfortable and most affluent, you tend to be most self-reliant. But it's when you're afraid, it's when you're fearful, it's when you're unsure that you cling It's in difficulty rather than ease and comfort that you find yourself more desperate for the shepherd's leading and subsequently more in tune with his voice. It's in the ravines that you start to strain yourself to listen to the voice of the Lord. Why do good people end up in valleys? Because the shepherd leads him there. Because the shepherd leads her there. Not to destroy you, but to build you. And you may ask, I feel like I'm getting throttled. I'm in the middle of the shadow of death right now and I feel like I'm getting throttled. The promise of the psalm and the warnings of the psalms are that the valley can destroy you if you let it. But it's not the actual shadow of death that can destroy you. F.B. Meyer again once uh, said this. He said, the shadow of a dog can't bite you. Now this isn't to say that we can't or won't suffer physical harm or real problems or torment or difficulties in this life. We will. It's not that we won't ever suffer death. All of us will. Some of you will lose stuff. Some of you will take a shot to your physical health. Maybe your emotional health. Some of you will lose money, maybe quite a bit of it. Some of us will suffer loss. The Bible promises that, that we're going to encounter difficulty. This isn't a promise that you're, you're going to have an easy life. The curse of sin makes sure no one gets a free pass. 
What the promise of the psalmist is, what the psalmist is saying is that for the believer, none of these things can cost us lasting harm. It means that the shadow of death can't take anything from you that's of everlasting value. It can't move you beyond. Paul would say in Romans 8, 38 through 39, I am sure that not even death and all these other things can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even death. Notice he he doesn't say I'm not going to die. He says it can't move me. And if it can't separate me from the love of God, what truly can it do? Death has lost its sting. But here's what the shadow of death can do to you. It can destroy you through your own fear. Fear is like a landmine in the valley of shadows that can decimate your life. Just think about it. One of the two emotions, fear and anger, as a result of any threat or any danger or any upsetting or any unsure or uncertainty in life, fear is one of those things that can grip you so powerfully. Think of the childhood that you had and how you are right now perpetuating things that you were afraid of as a kid. I'm not talking about the boogeyman under the bed, you know what I'm saying? I'm talking about subtle ways that we right now act because of something that happened before. Perhaps you grew up poor, and being afraid of poverty, you strove to excellence. You went to college, you went to school, you worked hard. You are right now working hard. In fact, you're working yourself to death. Some people would call it workaholism. Why? Because you're afraid of poverty. Perhaps you were beaten or abused as a child, and you're afraid of doing the same thing. So you raise your kid to be spoiled. They run you over and they run other people over and they'll pay for it later in this life. Why? Because you're afraid. Maybe you're afraid of what people think of you. Maybe you're in high school and you're so paranoid that people are going to disapprove of you that you will literally do anything that it takes to get on their good side. Anything. Go against your own morals and values. Sacrifice who you truly are to please other people. Why? Fear. Maybe you're so afraid of what's happening in the world. You look at a few headlines and you just won't even get out of bed. Or maybe you live in such a constant state of reluctance. Maybe you won't live a certain way. Maybe you won't go out and do certain things. Maybe you put this on your kids. Maybe it's completely changed the way that you live. Never forget, over a decade ago, after 9-11, the president had to tell people on national television, hey, go, go to the store. Like, go shopping. Don't stay in the house. Like, do stuff. Maybe there's something in your life that is so scary that it's actually changing the way that you live. Maybe one of your parents left your other parents, and so as a result of that, you'll never trust anyone again. Maybe you're in a relationship right now and that person is dealing with those deep set fears. I could go on and on and on. Fear is powerful. But the hope of Psalm 23 is you don't have to live like that. 
You don't have to live in bondage to fear and apprehension. You can make it through the valley without being destroyed by your own fear. Look at what David says in the last half of this verse. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. How does a person make it through the valley of deep darkness? David actually says it's God's presence. Over and above any other thing in your life, the one thing that will get you through the darkest times in life is God's presence. That's why at reality we have said so many times at the risk of over-repetition that God's presence will answer, a moment in God's presence will answer a lifetime of doubt and fear. Just being in the presence of God and sensing it and feeling it for a split second will do wonders. It has set people free in this very theater from years of bondage. People for the first time experiencing the power of the living God, just sensing his nearness. The psalmist says in in another writing, your nearness is my good. Some of you have felt that in this very building. Some of you have felt it in your car. Some of you have felt it in your living room. Some of you have opened up the Bible and in a desperate plea for guidance have sensed the warmth of God's presence and his love around you. And there's no explanation about why such is happening or this is happening or that is happening. And at that moment, you might not even care because of God's presence. All the answer you will ever need in this life. Perhaps when Christ comes again, he'll give us some more answers about stuff. But in this moment, it's God's presence. It's gold. I will not fear, for you are with us. And I want you to see this beautiful thing that David does as he writes this psalm. Up until this point, he's speaking in third person, as he tends to do. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then right at this line, he turns a corner using the second person pronoun to make this as deeply personal as possible, for you are with me. And in a rhetorical literary flair, he puts God on the center stage. David, in a moment of writing, has squelched out everyone that he was talking to. And this has become deeply personal. I think there's something for us right there. I think we know intuitively, a lot of us, that God is a benevolent, good, merciful, kind, gracious God to people in general. But do you know that he's good to you? I know you probably can get to this point where you're like, yeah, God is present with his people, generally speaking, the church, but do you believe that he's with you? Tangibly, specifically, individually, and personally with you? Yeah, I guess he's with people. I guess he's with the good, you know, the good Christians in the room that like read the Bible and sing really loud and lift up their hands, but I haven't done that for years. Do you believe that he would be with you? I will fear no evil for you are with me. David wrapping his soul in the most emotional outburst. It's almost like he was in the valley of the shadow of death at that moment and he was speaking out of experience. You are with me. His presence can get me through anything including my uh, debilitating fear. 
Listen to how the psalmist says this elsewhere in Psalm 46. Literally, the presence of God can get me through anything. This is what it sounds like he's saying. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God's presence can get you through anything. And notice that it's not a patronizing presence. We've all had those friends, right? They, they kind of chuck you like a word of peace tell you something like, I'm here for you, call me anytime, and you like actually call them, and they send you to voicemail. Like, hey, I'm here for you, I'm so sorry about what you're going through, call me, I just did last night, you sent me to voicemail. Hey, I have boundaries too, man. God's presence is actually and actively doing something as you are immersed in it. David tells us, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, those comfort me. It's not just your presence. It's not a patronizing presence. It's a presence that protects and guides. When we think of the shepherd's rod, perhaps you might think of the squiggly top, you know, the the walking stick that we see in all the pictures. Shepherd does have that. It's what he says later. It's the staff, but... It's not the rod. The rod is something different. It's actually a weapon. The word used here for rod refers to a weapon that was very common in the ancient Near East with shepherds. It was not a walking stick, as you might envision immediately. Rather, it is the shepherd's primary offensive weapon for protecting the flock from enemies, whether it's wild animals or human thieves. One scholar writes, the uh, instrument itself is about uh, maybe two and a half feet long. And at the end of of that two and a half feet is a mace-like end, just a ball of wood, which had heavy pieces of iron embedded into uh, into that ball of wood. It was actually a mace, a two and a half foot long mace. In fact, because of those pieces of iron, there are other places in the Bible, Revelation, some minor prophets, that refer to what is called the rod of iron. It's not talking about a piece of, uh, piece of rebar. It's talking about a shepherd's mace filled with iron pieces. This was a deadly offensive weapon. Do we ever think of little shepherd boys like with, uh, carrying a mace? This sounds more like Viking warfare. You know what I mean? This is the metaphor that King David is trying to impress into our minds. We don't have a shepherd that just kind of lets us waltz into danger. We have a warrior, protector. He's not just present with you to watch you get destroyed. He's present with you to protect you in a very powerful way. This is the exact instrument that David himself would have killed those lions and bears that he spoke about in uh, in Samuel. It's with a mace. He also has a staff, and that staff was what you generally envision when you see a shepherd, I, I imagine, is that long walking stick with the crook at the top. And that often just functioned to lean on. The shepherd would lean on it when they got tired. They would climb with it, but they would also direct the sheep. 
It's fairly long. They would direct sheep as they're going off the way. In fact, they could even use the crook of the shepherd's uh, staff to pull a wayward sheep back onto the trail. And this is the picture that we get, this metaphor that's being applied to our God. We have a God who's present, not just to watch us, but he's actually present to protect us and to guide us when we go astray, to lead us in paths of righteousness. So when we speak of God's presence, we're speaking about his guiding presence. What will get you through the valley of the shadow of death when it comes? It is God's guiding presence that comforts you and strengthens you and makes sure that you get through to the other side. There is nothing else in this life that is as potent and powerful as the tangible presence of God's guidance and care. And it's that picture in Psalm 23, that guiding presence that we find most vividly and most fulfilled in the Christmas story, actually. We're told in Matthew chapter 1, that as Joseph was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son and shall call his name Jesus, first name, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, second name, which means God with us. As if that shepherd's metaphor didn't drive it home enough, God actually steps down into our neighborhood and becomes one of us. His own name speaks about his presence with his people. Jesus, the Son of God, is born. He lives. He died. And in his death, Jesus went not into the valley of death's shadow, which is where we are, but into the valley of death itself. He goes into the valley of death itself, not merely its shadow, and defeats death by rising from the dead. The author of Hebrews tells us that since we have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by what? By the fear of death. Jesus dies that we might be freed from the power of the fear of death. He dies, he rises from the dead, and in this period, in this tension of life, waiting for him to come back, in the middle of the ravines, in the middle of the valley of the darkest shadow, he gives us a taste of the life of heaven to come, namely Christ himself. He is closer to us than we could possibly imagine. Not merely a shepherd guiding us behind, from behind or from, uh, from in front, but he is actively in us in a special way. Not just with us, but in us. I love how 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Hey, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God who is in you is greater than the Antichrist who is in the world. God is in you. We see this picture of God's presence all over the place in every different facet that you can imagine. He is in you. He is around you. He is behind you. He is before you. He is above you. He is beneath you. He is with you. And he is for you. 
And if God is for you, as Paul would say, who can be against you? Do you see how the power and realization and awareness of God's presence can change your life? Do you see how easily it dispels fear? King David in uh, in a battle would say, hey, you are my lamp, O Lord, (laughs) and my God lightens my darkness. I may be in the ravine, but there is a powerful light shining brightly. And by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Literally, I'll, I'll go anywhere, as long as God's presence goes with me. Moses said on Mount Sinai, hey God, if, you're, if your presence doesn't go forward from here, if your presence doesn't lead me from this place, don't tell me to go anywhere. To paraphrase Moses' words, I don't want to go anywhere that your presence is not. And we see that captured so vividly in the the pillar of fire and the cloud, Israel would follow God's presence. Wherever God's presence camped, they would camp. Whenever God's presence moved, they would move. What a beautiful and lovely picture for the church today. Is there anything more important to the Christian than God's presence? And so even when valleys emerge, even when death itself bites, and it will bite, we ought not fear it. It has no true power over the believer. Paul would say this in his letter. Hey, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death has lost its sting. Now, the language there isn't, hey, you'll never die. (laughs) The language isn't, you'll never suffer. The language of the psalmist or the apostle Paul or Jesus, it's not there will never be any more valleys to go through. Rather, the language here is death has lost its ability to crush you. The language of the psalmist is the valley of the shadow of deep darkness has lost its ability to steal from you anything of value or to instill fear in you in a way that will shake you. You have been set free in Christ and his spirit is with you to comfort you through even the most difficult moments in life. You cannot lose. And you're not alone if you're in Christ. Even though you can't see his effects, even though you can't sense his presence, even though you're in the valley of deep darkness, even though it's confusing, you are not alone if you are in Christ. That's a promise of God. And sometimes valleys have a way of teaching this like no other. Sometimes it's in the valley of deep darkness that we realize more than in any other place in life, God's presence is here. More so than comfort, more so than times of affluence, more so than times of security, it's in those times where you are in the valley of the shadow of death that you sense, like Job, God's presence is among us. Wasn't it Job himself who said at the, end of his, uh, at the end of his book that someone else I think wrote? After having lost everything and still speaking with God, he was the one who said, God, I used to hear of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. It's often in the valleys that we experience more of God, not less of him, if that's what you're looking for. Paul said, I I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God took us through that experience so that we would experience more of his resurrection power. Maybe that's what you need today. This is not for the valleys to disappear, but for the resurrection power of God to come upon you. We don't have to just be free merely from the power of death. Maybe you're 21 years old and you're like, I ain't going to die for at least like a decade. Like fear, like death isn't like a thing that I think about, you know. But there's other things that you're afraid of. There's other insecurities and discomforts and uncertainties in life, all of which ripple out from death as a result. And this is the goodness of God's sheep following the shepherd through the dark valleys. Nothing, not even the smallest fear. Whether it's as small as how well you're going to do on a midterm to something as big as losing a loved one or facing cancer. Nothing can pull you away from your shepherd. problem, perhaps I think for some of us, perhaps for maybe a lot of us in this room, is that not everyone in here are sheep. By that I'm just carrying on the metaphor, people who belong to God. You're not just, you don't just belong to God because you were born. Jesus would tell Nicodemus, a religious professional We'd say, you're not not God's child because you learned all of this stuff in seminary or because you're looked up to by all of these spiritual people or because you know so many things. I would extend that conversation to you and say, you're not a child of God just because you come to church or because you come to a specific church or because you have experienced something or believe certain things, all of which are good. That is not the deciding factor. Jesus would say, you must be born again. You must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 10, verse 16, he says about people who don't belong to him, I love this tone of hope. He said, I have other sheep that are not in the sheep pen. I have. They don't belong to me yet, but I have them. Some of you are in this building, you don't belong to God. Look at how Jesus speaks about you. You don't belong to me yet, I think he would say. There's sheep that are not yet in my sheepfold. I must bring them together too. When they hear my voice, then there will be one flock of sheep and one shepherd. There's some of you in here, you would call yourselves maybe non-Christians. I wouldn't call you that. I would call you not yet Christians. Because God's pursuing you. And the moment in which a person is born again is when you are supernaturally able to hear the voice of God. That's what Jesus says. My sheep will hear my voice. In fact, maybe he's calling you right now. Maybe it's just a stirring in your heart and you have no idea how to make sense of it, but it's something you've never experienced before and God is pulling on you. Maybe you're like, stop it, get out of my head, what's happening? 
I just wanted to go to a nice December service. Go back home and take a nap. (laughs) I hope you don't sleep today. I hope that voice gets bigger and bigger until you do something about it. I hope it grows uncomfortable and loud and boisterous. I hope it becomes a nuisance until you're forced to face your shepherd. Perhaps he's calling you right now. You don't have to be afraid. He wants to transform your life and show you true joy and freedom. He doesn't promise to take you out of the valleys, but he promises to be with you in them. And the question that you have to deal with right now is will you follow the great shepherd? You might be saying, well, follow him where? Like, what's the tent, like, what are the next ten things that I required of me? Eh, details. Worry about that later. All that matters is Jesus is calling some of you. Might be others in this room that are, are believers. Maybe you've been a, a Christian your whole life. And Jesus might be speaking to you right now. And you might actually be in the midst of the valley as we're speaking. And I just want to ask you, are you listening? Maybe you've gotten so scared and shaken up over time that all you can hear these days are crowded thoughts being formed in your own mind. Maybe even if you tried to listen to God, you wouldn't hear anything. You just hear your own scattered, crazy thoughts. I want to do something for you this morning. And ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to stop everything like we do every week and try our very best to create an environment that will allow you to face Christ himself. An environment that will, to the best of our ability, We need the Holy Spirit, but to the best of our ability, make an environment that simply points to Jesus so that you have the freedom and opportunity to face him. And not just face him, but to begin to practice. And maybe for some of you, it'll be a long time since you've done this, but to practice abiding in his presence. If that's you, I want you, to, I want you to do something with me. I'm going to get a little c- contemplative on you. That's no surprise, I'm sure. I want you to close your eyes. I'll do this with you. As the music is playing, I just want you to close your eyes and imagine for yourself that valley. For you, that valley might be anything. It could be the stress in your life. It could be loss of a loved one, it could be losing your job, being laid off, it could be going through your budget and finding that you're in the red, you can't put food on the table, maybe your wife left you, maybe your husband left you, maybe your marriage is falling apart, I mean, whatever it is, maybe you just have a headache. But for you, I want you to envision that thing. You're in the middle of it. You're in the valley. You're in the storm. You're in the boat. 
And right now, I want you to do this. I want you to intentionally place yourself in the presence of the living God. I want you to stop everything. Eyes closed, I want you to imagine in that darkness of the ravine, I want you to imagine the overwhelming love of God pouring through every crevice of that valley, rushing upon you like a flood. I can say this because the Bible promises. All I'm asking you to do is envision what the Bible says is already a reality. I want you to do this for the rest of this morning. Perhaps your mind is like mine. It's just scattered and you're, you're trying to quiet your heart and be still before God, but your, your mind just keeps bump, just popping everywhere. Take a phrase from the psalm. Could be any phrase, whatever just wraps itself around your your heart. I will fear no evil. Or maybe it's the phrase, He comforts me. Or maybe it's, The Lord is my shepherd. Or maybe it's, You are with me. Every time your mind starts to scatter, just repeat the word of God in your heart and in your mind. And as you do it, allow yourself to come back to God's wonderful presence. A moment in the life, a moment in the presence of God can answer a lifetime of questions. I can think of no better way to spend the rest of our morning than in the presence of God. And he's here. He's here with you.